Hopefully that'll help to orient you just a little bit to this book that we're beginning today. And, you know, fair warning. Uh, not only is it bloody and gory, it's certainly not G-rated. And I don't know that there could be a much more relevant, applicable, feel like it was written this morning book for our land and our day. So let that video serve as my introduction and we're going to get right to work. Judges chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? That sets the frame, that sets the stage. We're going to pray in just a moment for the Lord's help, but I want you to just get that into your mind. Don't miss that. After the death of Joshua. Today, the book opens by telling us Joshua dies, but really chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 is telling us what happened while he was still alive. In fact, if you just skim ahead to chapter 2, verse 8, then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. So everything between verse 1 and chapter 2, verse 8, Joshua's not dead yet. But it's setting the frame, the stage, the situation for what happened as this godly leader was taken away from Israel. And the whole book of Judges, as the video summarize for us is the sad story of what happened for about 400 years. Now America is about 250. We're talking for about 400 years. As you read the 21 chapters of the book of Judges, the long sad story of what happens when people try to live without God. The previous book, Joshua, also tells us about his death at the very end. The book of Joshua ends by saying in chapter 24 that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at 110 years old. Then Judges begins with that same reminder. Don't forget, Joshua's dead. He's the only Old Testament character who we're told three times he died. And Joshua's one of the few characters in the entire Old Testament that doesn't have a lot of shady material about him. He is, in so many ways, a type of Christ. He's a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of Yeshua, of Jehovah who saves. And when He's gone, the people are in trouble. So we're going to look more closely at Joshua's death, Lord willing, in next week's sermon because that's covered in some detail in chapter 2. But we want to take chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 5. And before I pray, I'm going to tell you the point of our sermon. It's the title of the sermon. The Roots of Apostasy. The soil that turning away from God grows in. And is this present in our own heart? We're going to learn in our portion of Judges today where apostasy is rooted, where turning away from God finds 
its first growth. And again, before we pray, I want to say these things just to invite you to pray this prayer with me that I'm preparing to pray on our behalf. But my prayer is that it's in your heart before I say it. How did Israel go from the people of God's mighty power to a people who were unrecognizable as anyone who had ever known Him? How did they go from such a fresh, powerful, personal experience of the sovereign hand of God not too many years earlier when He sent the ten plagues on Egypt and He thwarted them through the Passover and the death of the firstborn that is thwarted Egypt and He led Israel out through the Exodus and He ripped open the Red Sea. These are the people who saw the mighty provision of God in the wilderness. This is the Israel that got the law on Mount Sinai, the tabernacle and the presence of God by cloud and fire, day and night. These are the people, literally these people, walked across the Jordan River on dry ground into the land of promise. They saw the walls of Jericho fall down. These are the people who not only saw God drive out the enemies in their midst, but also gave to them the land and allowed them to allot it to the 12 tribes of God's chosen people. How did they go from being that people to, if you have your Bible open, look at verse 10 of chapter 2. How did they so quickly become a generation who did not know the Lord, nor the work which He had done for Israel. Today's sermon gives us the answer. It's what Trey was saying to us last week. The terrifying truth is that the problem is not out there. It's in here. The problem was not primarily all the badness of all the bad people who were in Canaan. The problem was the badness in all the people who were supposed to know and walk with the Lord. Today's sermon is the roots of apostasy. Again, I'm preparing to pray. The word apostasy basically means turning from Jesus to a false god. To turn away from Christ and to embrace anything else that you think will satisfy you. If Jesus Christ is not the sum total of your eternal hope and your present confidence, God guarantees you at least one thing. You'll never be satisfied. How did Israel go from being so clearly identified as Yahweh's people? To the people who, verse 10 of chapter 2 says, did not know the Lord nor the work which He had done. One commentary put it this way. Here's how they became those people. They began to tolerate false gods, idols. And then that became apostasy. 
At first it seemed reasonable, but it proved lethal. Living with the Canaanites led to worshiping with the Canaanites. Tolerating Baal sooner or later leads to bowing before him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would help us to see and to eliminate any potential roots of apostasy in our own hearts. And that you would cause this church to be truly satisfied in Jesus. We pray this for your glory in his name. Amen. Sermon point is the roots of apostasy. It is chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. I'm not going to read all of that, but if you have your Bible, I want you to skim along, and I'll just try to give you the verses as I pick out some of the phrases. Chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Verse 4. Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. And they defeated 10,000 at Bezek. Verse 5, they found a king, Adonai Bezek, in Bezek, and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Down at the end of verse 7, they brought that king to Jerusalem, and he died there. Down in verse 10, so Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. And at the end of that verse, they struck Shishai and Ahman and Talmai. Down in verse 12, Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I'll give him my daughter Akash as a wife. Uh, uh, pardon me, Aksa for a wife. In verse 13, it happened. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, so he gave him his daughter as a wife. You go down to verse 17, Judah went with Simeon, his brother. They struck the Canaanites living in Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So if you go back to verse 1, Joshua dies. All right, who's going to lead us into battle now? And the Lord says in verse 2, Judah, just go. I've already given them into your hand. And all the way down through the beginning of verse 19, sounds pretty good. Even verse 19 opens, now the Lord was with Judah. They took possession of the hill country. But, 19b, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Verse 21, but the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Verse 27, but Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean and its villages or the other place or the other place or the other place. The end of verse 28. Israel did become strong, but they did not drive them out completely. 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites in Gezer. 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. The end of 32. The Asherites lived among the Canaanites because they did not drive them out. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. 35, the Amorites, pardon me, the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Heres. And we go to chapter 2, verse 1. 
Now, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of, the land, out of Egypt to lead you into the land. Pardon me. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named the place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. That word means weeping. I think you can already see the roots of apostasy. Like, how did Israel go from the day of God's power and presence, His mighty acts and their obedience to Him, to be a people that we read about in this book, I said it's not G-rated. And the video said it's very bloody. It's so bad that a prominent preacher in our land not too many years ago refused to preach the last three chapters, not because he didn't believe it was God's Word. He said it's too dark. It's too bad. I mean, we need it, but I don't know if I can even preach it right now. I don't even know if my heart can handle it. It goes from bad to worse. How did they get there? And how do you know you're not going there? What are the roots? Where does this seed of apostasy grow? The answer the book of Judges gives us, at least the vivid picture in chapter 1, is partial obedience. ESV Study Bible says the book of Judges was written to show the consequences of religious apostasy and also to point the way to a king who, if righteous, would lead the people to God. Our sermon series through Judges is going to be quick. Six weeks covering a lot of territory. One sermon is going to cover the whole middle of the book, the seven cycles of rebellion. The whole series for six weeks is Christ or Chaos. If you can get that theme, you'll understand judges. You will have Christ or you will have chaos. Now life may be hard even if you have Christ, but you will not have that chaos that those who don't know the Lord live with. You can have peace in the midst of the challenge if you have Christ. But it's Christ or chaos. That's the theme of our series I've been reading and listening to this book over the previous months in preparation for this series, and that descriptor, Christ or chaos, just presents itself to me continually as more and more fitting for the message of this book. Either we have Christ Jesus as Lord, or we have chaos in the territory of our heart and in the expression of our lives. I mentioned the book of Judges is a roughly 400-year-long story of what happens to mankind who tries to do life his own way. 
Again, the ESV Study Bible says after the death of Joshua, a new era begins. Significantly, however, no new leader is appointed. This foreshadows the chaotic conditions and the apostasy that would prevail. Chaos. The chaotic conditions. The most well-known verse in the book is well-known for good reason. It's repeated four times in chapters 17 to 21 at the end of the book. It's the very last verse of the book. And that's on purpose. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The Lord used Pastor Trey last week to show us that the worst thing we could do for ourselves is follow our own heart. Don't follow your heart. Tell your heart who to follow. Our heart is the problem. Doing what is right in our own eyes always leads to chaos, destruction, death, damnation. That's the reason that Jesus had to come and had to die to rescue us from damnation because since Genesis chapter 3, we've been trying to do what's right in our own eyes. That's literally why Jesus came. To set us free from ourself. And what we think is best. Judges is the shocking, true story. There's not one make-believe story in these pages. The shocking, true story of what happens when man does life his way. And bigger than that, the message of Judges is that God will never, this is remarkable, He will never abandon His covenant promises to His people. I was sitting in my sermon notes, but I just feel so pressed to say this right now. Seven times in the book of Judges, the people turn an about face away from God. They're literally sacrificing their children to Baal. But when they repent, God immediately turns His favor toward them, His face toward them, and rescues them. The reason I felt so pressed to say that is because do be terrified if you're running from God right now. Do be. Be terrified. Be petrified. Tremble in your shoes. Learn to feel dread. Psalm 99, Scripture call to worship. Tremble. Learn to tremble at your sin. Be terrified at that. But if you turn to Him, He'll have mercy on you. Be really terrified if you don't want to turn to Him. Be especially petrified if you don't want to turn to Him. If you think it's better that you get to do what's right in your own eyes, then turn to the God of covenant love. Be really terrified. Judges shows us that we don't need our way. We need God's good King who alone can rescue us from our rebellion and our ruin. If we're left to ourselves, We'll be exactly like the people of Israel in the days of the judges. We're going to persistently plummet further and further into rebellion and ruin. All the while thinking that we're better off charting our own course rather than following in the footsteps of Christ. It's either Christ or chaos. And the roots of that apostasy, that turning from Him, as I said a moment ago, partial obedience. 
The book of Judges said takes us from the death of Joshua for about 400 years. Where does it take us to? Where are we going to be when we end Judges in six weeks, Lord willing? We're going to go from Joshua to David. Not quite to David, but to his granddad, at least his granddad's embryo. The book of Ruth. And in this 400-year gap, when there's no king in Israel, we see the trouble that that brings. Life without the one true God is deadly. Doubly deadly. Death here, death hereafter. Okay, I mentioned there's a seven, seven cycles in the book of Judges that get increasingly worse. Four things happen in all seven cycles. It's literally in order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And in all the seven, four things happen. Number one, Israelites do what is evil in God's sight. Then, number two, God allows or causes the nation of Israel to be conquered and oppressed by their neighbors. Then number three, Israel cries out to God in repentance, brokenness, contrition. Number four, God sends a deliverer, a judge, to rescue them. So they rebel, they're conquered, they cry to God, God rescues them. Then the cycle repeats, and those four things happen. Then it repeats, and those four things happen, and that's the book of Judges. There's a few bright spots, but none of the judges are perfect. Deborah would be the most shining example, Othniel close second, but none of the judges are perfect. We hear little stories about Gideon and Samson. Trust me, you don't want to be like Gideon, and you don't want to be like Samson. Four of those judges do show up in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament. Gideon, Samson, Deborah, Jep, uh, Barak. But those judges are far from perfect. The story of Judges is not about the greatness of the judges. It's about the need of the people of God to have a rescuer, a leader, a hero who can save us from our own self-destructive, self-autonomy, doing what's right in our own eyes and our own idolatry. As these seven cycles unfold, not only is the pattern the same, but I mentioned it gets worse. By the end of the book, one commentary said Israel had totally violated her covenant with God in almost every way imaginable. Those last three chapters are dark. But even in those circumstances, the commentary goes on, God was working out His plan. His plan was not thwarted. Even by all the human failure and sin, God was saving His people. Well, that's the background. What happens in chapters 1 and 2? That's the roots of apostasy. And I'm going to make just a few comments, few pressing uh, words of application. In chapter 1, partial obedience. Not totally driving out the enemy. Not taking the territory that God had given to them. There's three problems that I want to draw out from chapters 1 and 2 in these words of application. <clears throat> Consider your company, your character, and your commander. Your company. Why did Israel fail? Well, they were doomed to failure because they didn't obey God. They compromised. They did not drive out the false worship of the Canaanites. 
they embraced it. This does not mean that Christians today should never hang out with a non-Christian, but it does mean you're an absolute fool to think that if your closest, closest acquaintances and the people who have the most influence in your life do not love Jesus, you're a fool to think that will have zero effect on you. If your primary influences, for example, are people that use foul language, you already know good and well that you will become just like that. It's way easier to pull people down than to pull people up. So what are you willing to tolerate? What about the company around you? Not just the people you're around, I'm talking about the people that influence you. The people you most enjoy want to be like. What are you willing to tolerate? Well, the bottom line of chapter 1 is you can't manage sin. As John Owen said, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. See, Israel was happy in chapter 1 to have a little bit of obedience to God. They were happy to surround themselves at the same time with godless people. In fact, they were so comfortable living with lost people as the primary ones to influence them that they, Judges chapter 3, verse 6, took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and, chapter 3, verse 6, served their gods. That's what will happen to you. It's not too far from us here at Grace Church. Many of you who've been around here for years know that we've had multiple people who once sat right here with us and sang our songs and listened to our sermons that are now Judges 3.6, giving themselves as wives or husbands to godless people. What's your company like? Do the people who influence you the most know and love the Jesus of the Bible? Well, if you think you're going to be unscathed, remember 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So your company, Israel was willing not only to live near, but to be most influenced by people who did not know the Lord. And soon enough, they became just like them. Second, your character. This is why I said partial obedience was a problem. Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, Elizabeth Elliot wrote, partial obedience is total disobedience. It's a very powerful lesson we learned from Judges chapter 1. Partial obedience is total disobedience. In chapter 1, Israel, it sounds like they get a lot of success. Verses 1 through 19, yes, they go in, they drive out these people and those people, they defeat these people in that other land. But they were halfway keeping the Lord's word. So I want to ask you, is some obedience to the Lord your goal? Or is total obedience to the Lord your goal? Speaking very, as clearly as I know how, it's not anybody else's fault if you don't follow Jesus. It'll break their heart, but it's not their fault. At the end of the day, nobody else can live your Christian life for you. Judges proves that God is more willing to continue to pursue you if you'll repent now. And turn from all idols now to him. Seven times that cycle happens, and 70 times seven, God will forgive. But know that the more you presume upon his grace, the deeper your pattern of rebellion will go. 
Are you okay with partial obedience or is total obedience your non-negotiable standard? In Christ Jesus, we have an even more pronounced expose of God's heart than we see in the book of Judges. Not only is He willing to forgive, He's the one that died to remedy our rebellion. He's the one that we see in the book of Judges that never leaves or forsakes His people and keeps His promises of covenant love even in the face of the unfaithfulness of His covenant people. Sometimes we want all those bad people out there to get saved so it'll be a little bit easier for us to follow Jesus. It'd be great if all those bad people got saved. But nobody else can live our Christian life for us. Even if nobody else gets saved and the world continues to plummet into greater degradation and sinfulness, you can, you must continue to walk with Jesus. If nobody else goes with you, you must follow Christ. Jesus said to his closest followers, what is it to you if so-and-so does this or that? You follow me. What's your character like? So Israel was willing to be surrounded by pagan people and even worship their God, but it was deeper because their character was okay with partial obedience. A little bit of honoring Jesus sometimes. Not all of Christ all the time. And then finally, their commander. Who's your commander? One obvious lesson that Judges teaches us is that no mere man can be what we must have. Even for all the highlights and the lives of the many judges that we're going to talk about and the names that are hard to pronounce, none of them were the leader that Israel could depend upon ultimately as their hope. Do you have the right commander? Who is your judge? Are you living in that miserable pattern while you're trying to smile on the outside and pretend like you love your life? Are you living in that miserable pattern of making up your own standards based on how you feel? If so, I already know, contrary to the outward contrived smiles, that you're not satisfied. Judges teaches us that we not only should, but we must have a king, a godly king, a captain, a commander. A captain who knows us and can bring us into a favorable relationship with the God that made us and loves us. We need a leader who can bring down God's blessings into our lives. That happens many times in Judges but also who can lift us from this miry world to live for His glory, which Judges also shows us. Do you know Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Well, I said those were words of application. There's two specific words that I want to give, and then I'll close. Roots of apostasy. Hopefully it's obvious, though I haven't just said, go back and look at this verse and look at that verse and this verse. I hope it's obvious that in chapter 1, the roots are, they did not drive out the pagans in the land. The new covenant community of the Lord is not the nation of Israel. It's you. It's us. It's the local church. Are we willing to tolerate false gods in here? And the answer is yes, if 
we're willing to tolerate them in here. The roots of apostasy for Israel in the days of the judges are the same roots of apostasy for us in this new covenant age on this side of the cross. So the two words of application that I want to give are first, flirtation with false gods will seduce you to worship them. I do not want to spiritualize the book of Judges and make it say something that it's not saying. It is about an entire nation of God's people who traded on God because they preferred the idols of their neighbors. And I am trying to help us examine ourselves and our hearts to see if that same godless gravitational pull has taken root in our heart. The children of Israel entertained the gods of Baal, not only in their land, but even and especially in their worship. What idols of the pagans do we tolerate? Do you tolerate? In the territory of your heart or in the context of this church? Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, verse 12, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger, verse 13, so they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. That last name may not be as familiar sounding to you, Ashtaroth, but I said the word of application is flirtation with the God, false gods will seduce you to worship them. I literally mean seduce you. That's what Ashtaroth is all about. That's what verse 13 is saying. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. That word in verse 13 is referring to a female goddess. Specifically, a goddess of fertility, sexuality. It's a common idol of the pagans of Baal and the Phoenicians. So when it says in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 2 that because they didn't drive out those gods in chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, they serve them. Well, what, what idols are we tolerating? I, I, I like partial obedience. Yeah, Jesus, you can have my heart, just not all of my heart. What idols are we tolerating? Is it, is it Ashtaroth? Verse 13 means... They engaged in sexual idolatry. Do you suppose that you can flirt with sexual sin and not be consumed by it? Do you think you can hold burning coals in your hand and not be burned by them? For the sake of your own joy, and especially for God's honor, are you going to go through another calendar year of not consecrating yourself to the Lord in that specific area of your life? At the beginning of 2025, is your resolution again, like the last few years, going to be that you're going to give up that pet sin for the sake of your own joy so that you can be satisfied and for the honor of God in your life? The longing of your soul will not be met by the temporary gratification of your glands, but by the glorification of Christ in your heart. Chapter 3, verse 5. 
The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Verse 6, and they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Verse 7, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. How do you go from fearing God in one generation to forgetting Him in the next generation? Bowing before Him in worship to belittling Him with our carnality and worldliness the answer is by not driving out false gods from among you partial obedience it's not primarily driving out all those bad people out there that aren't in church today and making them move to another place geographically this isn't judges is not about us redoing constantine's conquest and his crusades today under the lordship of jesus it's about Christ reigning in our heart. You can glorify God right here, right now, even if nobody else goes with you. Del Ralph Davis said in his commentary on Judges, sin is not simply an action that you do or fail to do, that you can choose to do or choose not to do. Sin is a power that holds you in its grip. You can't manage sin. You can't domesticate it. It will overtake you. And that's what we learn in Judges chapter 1 and 2. Israel's fundamental problem is that they preferred the gods of the nations over the one true God. So one application, as I've said, is flirtation with false gods will seduce you to worship them. One application is don't flirt with false gods. Do not flirt with idolatry. Anything that demands your allegiance that dishonors Jesus is the thing you must repent from. The New Testament emphasizes this same theme so heavily. It's almost like the authors of the New Testament are reading the first two pages of Judges and just writing their stuff. They say things constantly, like 1 Corinthians 10, do not be idolaters. John, the beloved disciple, ends his epistle, 1 John, guard yourself from idols. It's just replete in the New Testament. Flirtation with false gods will seduce you to worship them. My last application, failure to recognize when you're seduced by those false gods is because you're already trapped by their damning grip. If you're not satisfied in Jesus and you don't know if you're worshiping a false god, it's because you are. Failure to recognize when you are seduced by false gods is because you're already trapped by their damning grip. How does the clutch of Satan get released from your life? How do the prison doors get blown open and you get to go free? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Hearing that Jesus Christ has come into your existence and without sin has taken your idolatry and went to the cross and died for your rebellion against God and rose again so that you could enjoy His freedom in fellowship with God forever, which will actually satisfy your heart, is the way that the clutches of Satan's grip get pulled off of your life. 
when a false deity has you in its sinister grip, what you need is the truth. And Jesus said, that's his name. (laughs) The way, the truth, the life. So what are the idols of our land that might have people blinded, gripped, imprisoned, damned? What are they? What are the gods that are most seductive to the hearts of God's children today? Now, I certainly don't know every variation of paganism, and I don't care to, but the gods of the Canaanites in Judges chapter 1, all those people that weren't driven out and all their false worship, certainly gives us a helpful expose of what might be crouching right at the door in front of us to devour us. They were, those Baal worshipers, and soon Israel, a hyper-sexualized society. The Canaanites thought that they were more pleasing to their deity the more promiscuously they behaved. That might sound crazy to you, but they literally built altars all over the land of Canaan. You go Google what they were called. Sexual symbols. Monuments all over the land. The exact same thing was happening in New Testament times. In in the city of Corinth, where the Apostle Paul went, the church at Corinth was, there was a temple to a goddess named Aphrodite. She's the fertility goddess of love. And in the New Testament, when Paul was in that city preaching the same gospel that I just said to you a few minutes ago, There were over a thousand temple prostitutes that worked full-time at that place of worship. What does that mean? It means that people would go to the temple to consort with prostitutes because they thought that would make them more pleasing to their God. Is our land anything like that today? At all? Anywhere? Have you ever seen any idols to sexual idolatry anywhere ever in our land? If you don't know you're worshiping that idol, it's probably because you are. That's what was happening in Canaan. I'm telling you with a broken heart. No gotcha. A broken heart that the sexual revolution among us is not only socially dangerous, and it is, but it's mainly a false religion. They have their church services. They have their worship services. Do you attend them? Do you tithe to them? When one's identity is tied to their glandular impulses, they're giving evidence that a false god has demanded their praise. I'm speaking a little bit in code because I don't know how to do this. Maybe you big kids can tell the little kids what I'm talking about. If you begin to define yourself by a self-actualized preference of sexual behavior, not just what you do with your body that may be sinful and that's bad, but who you are as a human, you can be absolutely sure that you're worshiping at the altar of a pagan deity. It's the exact same God of Baal that Israel didn't drive out. So hear me, young people. 
If you didn't understand anything I just said or you were tuning me out, hear me, young people. Every last one of you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your body is right. God is not seeking to steal your joy by telling you what He designed you to be. He's, on the contrary, positively, He is ready to fill you with joy and satisfaction as you surrender yourself, body, soul, mind, all of you to the Lord Jesus Christ. To be clear, the, the sexual revolution that these younger generations are growing up in, it, it's not the only problem. In, in fact, the church has been too silent on any and all heterosexual immorality, which is also a pagan religion. If you're in any way physically, emotionally, technologically, virtually engaged intimately with somebody who is not your monogamous heterosexual spouse, you are equally as grotesquely sinful as was Israel in the days of Judges. So failure to recognize, last application I said a minute ago, failure to recognize when you're seduced by false gods means you're probably already trapped in their grip. I close with Judges chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, which is where we'll lean in next week. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. 22 in order to test Israel by them. Whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed these nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. One commentary said that, that sort of talk in order to test Israel. God left some of these pagans there in order to test Israel. Commentary said this talk may sound strange to us because we have no real sense of the terror and awesomeness of God. We think that intimacy with God is an inalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. And there's nothing amazing about grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. There's nothing amazing about grace as long as there's nothing fearful about God and His holiness. And so I believe the call today is examine yourself. Are there any roots of apostasy, partial obedience, that you've been willing to entertain instead of the joyful, liberating freedom of the Lordship of Christ? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would take this little morsel, this little basket of fishes and loaves, this little sermon, Pray that You would apply it to our hearts. And especially that You would set us free from doing what is right in our own eyes. In that prison of self-autonomy, self-worship. And give us the great joy of joining You in seeing the wonder and glory of Christ and as Christians 
reveling in the fact that we're washed in His blood and empowered by Your Spirit to live lives that are holy, pleasing to You. I pray specifically today for any among us who are battling because of the lies that are told them and sin nature within them, just with their own identity as a person, who they are, who You've made them to be. God, I pray that You would set them free through the power of the gravitational pull of the beauty of Christ. And Lord, I pray for all who are walking in this pattern of what feels like hopeless cycle of repent, recover, rebel. Repent, recover, rebel. Lord, I pray that you would break the power of canceled sin. And today, Lord, would you do what Isaiah said? Break the shackles. Let the prisoners go free. Break the yoke. Break the chains, Lord. Where, where sin has had its heyday and these patterns of habitual recurring sin have not been able to, uh, whatever reason, be overcome, I pray that by the blood of the Lamb, You would make us holy and cause us to know the joy of walking in the freedom and power of Christ. And I pray also for any who don't know Him. Oh God, before it's everlastingly too late, would You draw every heart here to Christ? We pray this for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.